not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. You can read my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. Today we meet Kara, and she was a good girl in every way. The oldest of six in a deeply religious family, Kara did not have a sip of alcohol until her 21st birthday, and even then, she had to ask the waitress what she should order because she was unfamiliar with her choices. You would never guess that in a few short years, this sweet young woman would find herself in rehab. Today we meet Kara and hear her story. Hi Kara, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. It's such an honor to speak with you today. I'm happy to chat with you as well, and especially honored because you are a busy mom. You have kids that are nine and under, three children. You've got a busy household. Thank you for taking time away from all of that to chat with us today. Yes, of course. And I assume your kids are home from school with the current situation with the pandemic. How are you managing with three kids at home right now? So I um, do work in the hospital setting, so I am still working. And so I'm managing it by um, really going back to uh, what I did in early recovery, using a lot of those same tools of taking it day by day, sometimes moment by moment, one step at a time, um, using my coping skills when I get anxious about, you know, trying to homeschool them of deep breathing, calling people that I am a part of a 12-step program. So calling people in my program um, that understand um, my thinking. And um, it's just really reminded me of that time. And I'm grateful that I have those skills today because that's been really helpful um, mm. for this time. So That's good to hear. Mm-hmm. I, I think I speak on behalf of everyone I, when I say thank you for the work that you do in the in the healthcare setting. It's so important, and I'm sure all of us are always grateful for our healthcare system. I'm in Canada, and yeah. um, and I know whenever I run into people in the community that I know have worked at the hospital or have helped, you know, when my family members have been sick or whatever. I don't even know if they know who I am, but I'm always so grateful and so appreciative when I see people who I know spend their life making sure the rest of us are okay. So thank you for that work that you're doing. Oh, of course. It's an honor. It's a passion. So, (laughs) well, I think we're going to get to hear a little bit more about this. So Kara, tell us about yourself and tell us your story. All right, so I'll start off by um, telling you that I'm a 34-year-old. I am married to my soulmate, Max. We've been married for almost 12 years, and as Jean said, we have um, three children, Jack, Carter, and Claire. Um, When Max and I got married, we were 22, so I like to say that we grew up together. Um, So there's been some challenges with that, but also some really great gifts and gratitudes. 
I do work full time. I do administrative work as part of a team of individuals who provide therapeutic care for children in a hospital setting. And I'm also an educator in the field for um, undergrad and graduate programs. Uh, I grew up in a fundamental authoritarian Christian home. And for those of you who are not familiar with authoritarian uh, parenting, it is essentially favoring or enforcing strict obedience to authority. So essentially, it was my mom and stepdad's way, period, and there was no discussion. My parents were divorced when I was eight years old, and I became the oldest of six children fairly fast as my mother remarried. Like many oldest children, I took on many responsibilities but wasn't given autonomy to make my own decisions. One thing I learned in recovery and in my healing journey is that I'm an empath, so I feel other feelings as if they're my own. So often as a child, I felt like I was too sensitive or too emotional, so I learned to shove those feelings away. I also had a codependent relationship with my mother, and because of my empath qualities, I would often try to create scenarios to make her happy or feel good when ignoring my own intuition or instinct. For example, if we would discuss what we wanted for dinner, I would say something that I knew she would want rather than something that I would want just to keep her happy. Our family looked really good on the outside. My mom and stepdad had really great jobs. They made great money. We had a beautiful home, a well-kept yard. I knew how to earn good grades, have good manners to all the adults I interacted with, and was well-groomed. But what I didn't know is how to sit or handle with my emotions. I didn't grow up with alcohol in my home. I actually had my first drink that I can remember on my 21st birthday at a local Irish pub. I went at that time with my boyfriend, my high school boyfriend, and my mom, ironically. And um, I didn't know what to order, so I asked the waitress, and it was a lunchtime, so she had um, recommended a mimosa. And so that is what I had. I had one mimosa on my 21st birthday. So at this time, I drank very socially. But when I did drink, I often did get sick or acted in ways that wasn't like me. And I never really knew how to control my alcohol. It would, I would have one drink, and then the next thing I knew, I wasn't able to walk straight. When Max and I were married, we went to Napa Valley, California, in Big Sur on our honeymoon. We went wine tasting, and it was fabulous. Wine made me feel very adult-like and helped me to feel part of something. Drinking also gave me the courage, and this is important because of my need to please people. So I often didn't speak my opinion, but when I drank a little wine, I had the courage to do this. I was diagnosed with postpartum mood disorder with all three of my children. When I had children, the codependent relationship I had with my mom worsened. I would seek her approval for everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Things such as what should my kids eat? Where should we buy a house? How should I decorate my house? Does this shirt look okay? Um, there's a story that I have that my sister-in-law shares with me where um, she had just recently met me and she had made a comment like, how, how many times do you talk to your mom in a day? And um, I said nine and she was like, whoa. And she told me today she would ask that person a little bit more questions about their relationship with their mom. But um, I guess that just goes to show you 
um, really how codependent it was. So this codependent relationship worked okay with my first child. However, my second child was very different. I have a background in child development and my second child really tested me. I would think of all of my plans I would have and he would trump those plans. This is really when I began to use alcohol to self-medicate because of a feeling of being overwhelmed and not knowing how to cope with my feelings. I also want to note that I'm dual diagnosed, so I do suffer from anxiety and depression on a daily basis. I have a very clear memory, and I know the year because I know the year the movie came out, in 2014, when my drinking took a turn. I had both kids, and neither kid would take a nap. I, wo I worked overnight at the hospital, so I had little sleep. This was the first time I purchased Frozen on Amazon for $20 because it had just come out, so you couldn't rent it and I opened wine during the day. It was probably around 1 p.m. I thought, this is it. This is what is going to help me get through these early mommy years. And I saw so many memes, so I thought it was normal. I thought drinking in whatever capacity was okay and that I deserved it. Throughout my recovery journey, I have followed some amazing honorable women. One of them, Glennon Doyle says, often people who need help look a lot like people who don't need help. My rock bottom was still functioning in society, but I was dying inside. I knew it was really bad when my four-year-old asked me to get a Happy Meal and I had to stop at CVS on my way to grab a Boda box so I could get through the couple hours we had together. I bought my son his Happy Meal and drove home where I met my very scared husband. He told me to get in the passenger seat and he drove me to rehab. Rehab wouldn't take me until I was medically cleared, so I spent the night in the hospital and went to rehab the next day. I was there for 14 days. When I got out of rehab, my biological father, whom I'm very close to, was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma. I went to 12-step meetings when I could, but I was really a dry drunk. I was abstaining from alcohol, but I wasn't working on the reason I was drinking in the first place. So I relapsed in March 2018. My husband gave me an ultimatum. I remember this day so clearly. Um, he said, if I that I need to go back to rehab or he is leaving with the boys. He had already talked to a lawyer and had plans in place. I could see the pain in his eyes when he said this, but I actually said back to him, I don't care, take them. I knew that that wasn't me. After I said that, I knew I had to stop. I knew I had to surrender. And this is where the third step prayer comes in. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. When I was in rehab, a nurse came up to me and said, I need to talk to you. She brought me into the med room and told me I was pregnant. I couldn't believe it. I called Max and he said, I can't hear this right now and hung up the phone. I never felt so alone in my life, sitting in rehab, finding out I was pregnant, not knowing if I was going to be married anymore. But there was a part of me that also felt so full of life because I was growing a baby inside of me. So I had some hope. I was in rehab for 10 days. When I got out, my husband was upset and still talking about leaving if I didn't stay sober, and my friends and family were upset as well. I suffered from hyperemesis in pregnancy, so I felt horrible. 
Hyperemesis is something where you can't keep food or drink down and you have to get IVs to stay hydrated. I would vomit 12 to 14 times a day. I relapsed on Mother's Day, 2018. I purchased a Boda box and went into my upstairs bathroom and took a sip and prayed I would hate it. I drank it and threw it right up. I knew I was done. If I continued to drink, I was going to lose everything. I didn't continue to drink through my pregnancy. That was my last drink. Even though I was vomiting on my drive to and from meetings, I continued on my 12-step path to recovery. My childhood fears from my parents' divorce were being realized in my life once again. My friends had abandoned me for their own emotional safety, and my first sponsor even left. I was in my worst vulnerable place in recovery when a woman who I had looked up to in the program approached me. She said the most beautiful words to me. Do you need a sponsor, honey? I couldn't stop crying. I nodded my head. She said, call me tomorrow. As she gave me her number, my fingers were shaking. From that day forward, she charged me with the task of sending her three things I am grateful for each day. We worked all 12 steps together, and I saw my life change before my eyes. She looked back. She looks back on that day she approached me as recognizing me as a shell of a woman and noted that it's been beautiful to watch me transform. Another woman I truly admire is Laura McCohen. She says, in early recovery, you need to hear these nine things. One. It is not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it is unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you cannot do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, I love you. Nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. I truly believe spirit. My higher power brought this dear woman, my sponsor, into my life to be the person that reminded me of these truths. She stood by me on the journey of working the 12 steps before birthing my baby. Often people say the baby is the miracle, but I transformed so much through my pregnancy that I believe that I am the miracle and Claire is my gift. And oh boy, is she a gift. She was actually born on my six-month recovery birthday, so we get to celebrate together. I had to re-enter my life with this new incredible change and had to navigate what that looks like. During the steps, I had to make amends for my part and what had unfolded in my relationships. This was my lifeline to re-establish my support network. My husband, the man who was on the front lines of my addiction and had been put in several survival mode for four years, is still healing. We have had to work together on our marriage, on our own mental health journeys, and still establishing what we desire for our family in this new reality. In becoming healthier myself, I have had a lower tolerance for how unwell my family of origin is and had to put some heavy boundaries down, which resulted in ending my relationship with my mom and stepdad while I prioritized my sobriety. I have to learn what it is like to live life by myself, make my own choices, and be me. As you can imagine, this doesn't come naturally to me. I felt so validated when I read the book Educated by Tara Westover, where she says, You can love someone and still choose to say goodbye to them. You can miss a person every day and still be glad that they are no longer in your life. In my 12-step community, it is common that you get new friends when one comes into sobriety. 
I am in a unique position in that I became when I became healthier, my friends emerged stronger than ever. My husband and friends have rallied around me. They go to Al-Anon researching the disease of alcoholism and supporting my needs to social in social events. I couldn't be more grateful for this gift of their unconditional love. Due to my healing in the program, I'm finally able to start to receive this. I'm waking up to a new life. What keeps me sober today is 12-step work, going to meetings, and my, spiritual, my spirituality, which has grown exponentially. As I stated earlier, I grew up Christian, but my understanding of spirit and our soul contracts has really changed my way of thinking. My whole life, I was a people pleaser, and I followed the rules out of fear of what might happen if I didn't. I now see the world as a classroom for my soul's expansion. There are no mistakes, just a million pathways home. I reimagined my God and got to know a God who is loving and forgiving. I haven't been left to my own devices here on earth. I have learned my guides have my back. They are always around me, nudging my intuition and guiding me on my path. I mother differently, I love differently, and I have a whole new perspective on why I am here on earth. I love the quote by Mark Twain. The two most important days in life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Today I know my recovery has to come first or I will lose everything. I have a wonderful sponsor who has challenged me to look at some of my control tendencies and reminds me to give everything to God, who I now trust. My kids are a big part of my recovery. They love to look at my coins, count them, and ask about them. For my two-year anniversary, we plan to go and pick out a plant for my front porch. It's seemingly very ordinary moments like these that have so much meaning on this path. Mary Oliver says it so brilliantly in her poem, Wild Geese, which I will read now. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, and over and over announces your place in the family of things. So that's my story, Jean. Thank you for letting me share share it. Thank you, Kara. Thank you for sharing that beautiful Mary Oliver poem. Tell me how that speaks to you. Tell me why that resonates for you the way it does. So um, when I came into recovery, uh, one of my biggest things was shame and guilt. Um, And I continue to struggle with that. And that was one of the last amends I had to make was to myself. And this poem really shows, really tells me that, you know, the world is broken and people do make mistakes and there is trauma and there are, there are things that happen and those things aren't my fault, but it is my responsibility to heal from them. And so this poem really speaks to me in that way. And also just that there is unconditional love out there. When I grew up, I, I didn't feel that way. And I didn't know what unconditional love was. And this poem really shows me 
that there is. Because at the end when it says, you know, in the family of things, like everybody's in the family. And um, so it really speaks to me. I love it. Mm-hmm. That's a revelation when we when we realize that, right? That we don't have to constantly earn the the patch of earth that we're standing on. We don't have to earn our right to be here. Right. We wouldn't be here if we weren't meant to be here. And yet it can be hard to continually remember that. Are you finding that it's something you have to remind yourself of all the time or is it starting to become a core truth that you live and breathe and really feel in your life? So in the beginning, it was something that I feel like I did have to remind myself of fairly regularly. Um, Now I'm coming up on two years of recovery. And um, when I said in my journey that, um, you know, giving up the drinking was the first step, you know, the next step was really working on healing. And that's really what I did this past year is really worked on healing the trauma. And um, so I do feel like now um, it's, I have to remind myself of that less because um, I'm just so grateful for everything that this world has to offer me. And, um, you know, I look at everything so differently now, like even planting a garden to me, I'm just look at that. And I just think, thank you world for giving me the seeds to plant these vegetables so I can nourish my body. Like, I just feel like my whole understanding of life is different. And, um, so I don't have to remind myself of that as much. Give us a sense of how you felt when you were really deep in your dysfunction. Um, When your husband sent you to rehab or took Mm -hmm. you to rehab, um, what was your awareness of things at the time? Were you completely unaware that what you felt like was functioning wasn't working? Or did you really know that you know, it's only a matter of time. What, what was your awareness of the reality of your situation? So I knew it was bad. Um, I knew that I needed help and I knew that I had to change or I would lose everything. And, um, because I knew that, I think that's what motivated me to take the first step and ask for help. And then from there, I, um, am doing it for myself, you know, to better my life. And, um, yeah, I I knew it was bad even though I didn't necessarily want to admit that. I wanted to live in that for a little bit longer, the chaos, and I don't know why, but um, I think that that's pretty normal when you're in it um, because it just feels so scary to get out of it. Um, and that's really what I think about with early recovery. I don't think anybody really wants to be in that despair, like before they decide to, you know, go into recovery. I think it's, I think it's a horrible feeling. I never want to go back there again. So Mm -hmm. I have a lot of empathy for people in that stage. You shared what I suspect is a a really vulnerable part of your story. And that is to even say to your husband, you know, fine, take the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Did it shock you when those words came out of your mouth or did you know you didn't mean them? Um, I, I'm certain you're sharing that because you know, it speaks volumes about how, how you were dysfunctioning at the time. 
is that a word dysfunctioning yeah about how you were functioning <laughs> um how does that look to you now as you look back on that moment um I knew immediately when I said it that I needed to surrender and change because I knew that that wasn't me. Um, As I said in my story, I um, studied child development, but really the reason I did that is because my dream in life was always to be a mom. I always wanted to be a mom. And um, I think that part of my story of um, you know self-medicating through some of the overwhelm of being a mom – is ironic because that was what I always wanted to be. And so when I said that to my husband, I immediately thought like, wow, this, this isn't good. Like I, I need help. And, um, I'm really glad that I had that spark in me. Um, and I'm just glad that I had people that continued to believe in me. Um, because those times are really dark, you know, um, when people say stuff like that, And that's not who, that's not who I am. I don't know that person anymore. You know, that's how bad it was. That's what I often say is that that person was a different person and I don't know her anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you identify the addictive voice in your head as being having a persona? Sometimes people call their addiction Wolfie or Trixie or, (laughs) you know, give it a name or give it a persona because it's such a different voice that talks in their head and tells them to drink or tells them you yeah. know you're awful do you do you have an identity like that that you see your addiction as or how do you view it so I actually call it like my addictive brain I'll say um my addictive brain is you know making me think this um or my addictive brain is getting me here and I just kind of call it out. I'm a very honest person and um, I think that that's uh, really important um, in recovery. And so I, I call myself out when I uh, feel like my addictive brain is coming out and that's what I call it. I don't really have a special name. It's more addictive brain. <laughs> But you know that it's a a separate voice. It sort of seeks to preserve itself at all costs. Yeah. That's interesting. And another thing I'm wondering is that has your training in working with kids, how is that playing into going back and reparenting yourself? You know, that seems to be what a lot of us end up doing as we work through healing, whether it's through the 12 steps or through just going back and realizing, mm-hmm. oh, I got off track, gosh, when I was nine years old, because I, that's when I started seeing myself this way, or maybe didn't get my needs met. Mm-hmm. Are you able to use your expertise now to, to go back and maybe heal some things that from the past? Oh, yes, of course. So, um, you know, I did talk about my childhood, but I do want to say that, you know, I, I don't have any resentments. I, I believe that you know, my mom and stepdad um, did the best they could with what they knew how. Um, that doesn't discount my feelings in it, which is um, where I think things become challenging sometimes. Um, but I definitely, because of my knowledge of um, trauma and especially generational trauma. Can you explain for me what is generational trauma? What does that term mean? So there is actually research that um, 
when there is trauma, it does affect the DNA. Uh, so there is research. So there was this um, actual like lab where they had rats and they had them smell this rose hips and they made a really loud noise and all the rats jumped. And then they moved all those rats into different cages so they weren't associated with each other. And those rats had babies. They immediately moved those babies into another cage and gave them the rose hips and they jumped. And so the study essentially says that, you know, trauma, trauma that's not healed uh, continues to affect generations, whether it's the way that your parent responds to something, whether it's, I mean, it's really tricky to be a parent and have your own childhood traumas because they get mirrored when you have children. Um, and what I mean by that is that they get, um, you know, bigger, you know, some of your own traumas come out like through your children. And, um, it's really important to be aware of that if you're able, or at least for me, it is, um, important to do that because, um, I don't want that to affect my kids. So what do we do about that? In a way, I, I feel like uh, it makes me want to throw my hands up. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, my grandmother was um, a kid in, in World War One and had a very traumatic childhood and then immigrated mm -hmm. to Canada. My dad, then her son, grew up in extreme poverty on the prairies and they had a lot of trauma and and I just wonder like is there any hope for me would that be why some of us are wired spring-loaded right from the get-go or does it does it morph a little bit over time how do we how do we tend that in ourselves what does it look like do you think so you know I believe that when uh, children come here, they come as like their pure selves and then they adapt to their environment. Um, and so in my healing, I've done a lot of work um, with therapists and um, such to just do trauma work, inner child work. Inner child work is really important. Um, and essentially going back to that and dealing with some of that trauma so that um, – you know, you don't continue to have it and then pass it on from generation to generation is basically the mm -hmm. point of that. So if and while we heal, others heal. Um, right. And that's kind of a, that's a beautiful thing to me. You know, while, you know, we need to stay in our own lane as far as like, you know, worrying about what other people are doing in their life. But one thing that I do really love the idea of is as I'm healing, others are healing too, you know. Mm -hmm. even if they're not conscious of that. Right. Yeah. And sometimes we heal on their behalf. So I feel like I have so many advantages in, in my life that my grandmother didn't have. I mean, even just in terms of awareness and mm -hmm. we have all of these amazing resources now for mental health that weren't around 75 years ago that, right. that they couldn't use and so I sometimes feel like I just have this little conversation with her in my head or I wink to the sky sometimes thinking you know I do, I do this for both of us I do this for all of us yeah and uh it's sentimental but it's also there's something to it there's really something to it that's amazing yeah. I think it's beautiful <laughs> um when you 
read the third step prayer, mm-hmm. I noticed that I'd never heard that prayer before. And it sounded very traditional in the language mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in some of the um, more religious references mm-hmm. to it. So I thought that was interesting, Kara, because, you know, your upbringing was, was quite strict and mm-hmm. I believe you said quite religious. And mm-hmm. so are you still drawn to some of the um, vestiges of your, the religion of your upbringing? Have you shaped it to be a better fit for you now? Um, some people reject the religion of their upbringing altogether. And so I'm just curious, what have you brought forward with you? What serves you now from your past? So I haven't rejected my um, upbringing religion. I I think I've um, just learned more. I've opened my eyes more. And so, you know, I'm comforted by some of the old traditional um, thy and thous and, you know, the old traditional stuff. And that just brings me comfort just because that's what I, you know, heard as a child. So I definitely think that there's some truth to that. Of course, um, I am more traditional in, or not traditional in, um, you know, what we do with our family, we go to a very contemporary, um, worship service where the kids are throwing balls in the middle of the, the service and my daughter eats dinner on the floor and, you know, it's very, um, very much non-traditional. So I think I, I'm drawn to that just because it does bring me comfort. Uh, but that's not what I continue to do like with my family, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. You also mentioned that your husband and friends go to Al-Anon. Can you talk a little bit about how that helps you? Yeah. So this is really a family disease. And I've heard that over and over and over again and really didn't. I mean, I always got it, but I didn't get the depth of it until fairly recently. Um, So my husband um, is you know, dealing with his own mental health stuff just because, you know, while I was, you know, in active addiction, he was in survival mode for four years. And so he really has had to work through his feelings with that and what his routine was during that time. And so he works his own program through Al-Anon and Al-Anon, um, you know, is, is a 12 step program as well for loved ones that, um, have somebody that they know who is suffering from any kind of addiction. And, um, yeah, it's just been really helpful. I think for family members to be able to work their own program, because there's definitely things that, um, they too need to work through. Um, because the whole family is, you know, during a time of addiction is unhealthy. So, um, we've really had to grow and pick up the pieces in our family. And I'm grateful that, you know, my husband has held on and we've done the work and, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. One of the Al-Anon staples that I think a lot of us that know only a little bit about Al-Anon know a few of, a few of the basics. And one thing that comes to mind of that program that I've heard before is the term detach with love, Mm -hmm. which means really that sometimes people who are, have someone in their life that has an addiction or is in recovery from addiction, they're very used to 
being involved, either trying to control or trying to manage that other person, um, monitor them. Um, they are, as you said, it's a family disease. And so they have a pattern that they've fallen into. And the idea of detaching with love is really letting you take ownership of your, of your illness and of your recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that is one thing that comes to mind. So uh, how does it feel to be the recipient <laughs> of detaching with love? I've never considered this. I've talked about it lots of times on this show, but have you ever had times where you're like, oh, he's doing the thing right now? <laughs> or <laughs> um, has it has it been come up as an awareness in your relationship? It has come up as an awareness. It's something that I notice and I do notice my uncomfortable feelings with it. I think that's human nature. However, I also know that it's important for him to have his outlet. Um, I, I take ownership for, I mean, part of my program is taking ownership for, um, the actions that I had during that time. And like I said, I don't know that person anymore. And so, I, I'm not that person. And so really, um, what my husband is talking about is a time in our life that was horrible that he needs to, you know, have his own recovery program from. But, um, like I said, I do get uncomfortable feelings occasionally, but, um, I try to just really focus on his need to heal as well. Um, because I'm doing the same thing, you know, sometimes in my, in my sessions, I'm talking about things that maybe, you know, I'm not so happy about that, you know, he's doing or whatever. And I just think we're both really, we both just really give each other grace and love and, um, through this and whatever we have to do to be better and come out of this on the other side with a testimony and a story and ability to do service work. So, and I think we both feel that way. And like I said, at the end, my children are also very involved and, um, I just think my mission is really going to be, um, you know, doing service work for those that are earlier on in recovery. So I have to say, you know, as you talked um, early in your story about being very codependent and very enmeshed with your mom and just being really focused on other people around you, it seems to me like this is enormous growth for you to be able to just say, that your husband needs to have his own experience and that you can allow him to have that. Like that's very counterintuitive for someone who is hardwired to keep an eye on how everyone else is doing. So I feel like that kind of growth is going to serve you really well in Mm -hmm. your, in, in your future and in your ongoing recovery. I feel like that's, that's huge. And I, and so many people that I, I hear their stories on this show talk about what amounts to a version of codependency Mm -hmm. as being what underlies their addiction and that the, the addiction ends up being a symptom of the weak foundation or the compromised foundation that codependency created for them underneath it all. Does that ring true for you? Yeah, I think it really does. Um, as I stated, my addiction started, you know, after having children. And I think a lot of that really had to do with, um, feeling of overwhelm, feeling of inadequacy because I was trying to please other people and 
but yet I had these ideas of what I wanted too, and they weren't lining up, and it it just caused a lot of overwhelm for me. And I I think um, along with my depression and anxiety, um, which I was diagnosed with, I began to self medicate. So, um, yeah. You know, Kara, that's exactly how I felt as a young mom, but I could never have put those words to it because I had so much shame about that. Mm-hmm. I, just as you said, you know, I always knew I wanted to have kids. I always wanted to be a mom. And then I had kids and I realized I'm terrible at this. This is nothing like what I thought it was yeah. going to be. And, and I felt so ashamed of that. So I love that you're able to identify that and that you've changed the narrative. Yeah. And you talked about your kids being involved in your recovery, you mentioned that they play with your coins. And by that, you well, explain what you mean by that. Explain what that is. So in my program, I get uh, coins for my anniversaries. So I have, um, you know, one month through 12 months, as well as a 24-hour coin. And then I have a coin from when I went to rehab. And then um, one of my sponsors had given me a coin from Hawaii, which I really love. Um, and so anyway, I just have this collection of coins in this special bag and I keep it in my purse with me always, but they also know it's there. Um, and so sometimes, I mean, they have to be very special with it. They're not allowed to like take it away from me or like play with it like on their own, but they're allowed to look at them and, um, hold them. And I tell them the story of them and how I earned them and how, um, really through my higher power is, you know, and who I call God, um, is helping me through this and, um, that essentially it's a miracle and, um, we're going to go. So I celebrate by the grace of God and, um, I will celebrate my two years, um, March 4th or May 14th. I'm sorry. And we plan, the kids already discussed that they want to get a flower for our front porch and they want to do that every year. So that is their plan and they're excited about it. So Oh, that's lovely. Well, mm-hmm. congratulations on that upcoming milestone. Thank you. It's really, really a tremendous accomplishment. And I love that your kids are part of it because it's just so practical. You know, it's just so pragmatic to mm-hmm. be able to talk about it. And um, I think that's so lovely. With your youngest, mm-hmm. um, my, I have a, a nephew who was born on the day of my dad's funeral which I know um they and my dad's funeral was on my dad's birthday so this little guy was born just a few days after my dad passed away hours after his funeral and they share a birthday and of course he was named after my dad and so when I when I look at that little guy and he's so cute. Um, I see also, I don't just see him as a person, but I always see a reminder of how long my dad has been gone. Mm-hmm. And and yet it's lovely. You know, it's to use um, a Glennon Doyle term, it's brutal. You know, yeah. it's like we miss, <laughs> you know, it, it's sad, but it's also beautiful. And uh, that came to mind as you talked about your youngest. And so she's kind of like a twin for you in a way and that your new life coincided with hers. So do you have that experience when you look at her and see your recovery growing in tandem or what's that bond like? Oh, I really do. Um, she 
when I said she's a gift, she really is a gift. Um, she is a example of my healing. Um, she's thriving. She's healthy. She's, you know, she's going to be 18 months, you know, at my two years and she, um, you know, is doing all of her milestones and she's just so, so fun. And, um, yeah, I just think of it as like a, something that we have special. And what was really nice is that, um, my sponsor, uh, actually brought me my six month coin on the day she was born. And I just thought that that was really special. And so I keep that coin really close to me because I just, um, you know, I, I have a lot of shame around some of my parenting and my addiction time. And, um, I really love my children dearly. And that person, me, the person I am today would never have done those things. And so, um, I just honor all of my children. They're all little reminders of the miracle of sobriety. Um, and without sobriety, I wouldn't have any of them. Um, and so I'm just grateful for them. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, let's talk a little bit, if you're okay with that, about your mom. And yeah. You talked about having to make a hard decision to put a boundary there to protect your sobriety. Can you share, if you're comfortable, why that boundary was necessary? If you didn't grow up in a home with alcohol, is it that your mom doesn't um want you to be healed or to be what what does that look like and why is that important to sobriety for you so as i said it's a codependent relationship and um so often my decisions whether um you know i just graduated from graduate school in december so um like my decision to do that was you know maybe not, that's just an example of maybe her not approving or, um, just things like that. And, um, to be honest with you, um, it really had to do with me as a person and me having to feel comfortable making my own decisions and being myself. Uh, there is some trauma there and the trauma is ignored and not acknowledged. And so that has been really hard for me too. Um, I did make an amends and, um, I, yeah, I just, I sort of feel like, you know, in order to be on this journey with me, there has to be an understanding of what this journey is. And, um, I kind of feel like some of the decisions that her and my stepfather make are opposite to protecting my sobriety. And it's not so much a drinking thing as it is, um, you know, things that they say or the way that they treat me. Um, that would be more of it. Do you see that as being something that could ever be healed or resolved? Or do you just accept that this is how it might always be? So for now, I accept it. I hope that it can change. Um, I tried. Uh, what I didn't share in my story is I did try for a year to allow the children to see them because I, I really thought that was important. Um, and then that felt harder than it was actually worth because my kids would be more upset by that because they didn't understand why 
you know, Grammy didn't say hi to mommy and, you know, it just caused more question. And so we stopped that. So I really tried for a while. Um, and I sent pictures and sent letters from the kids and I talked to the kids about it and the kids know that it's my decision. And, um, and I hope that it can be better at some point. I just know that it can't right now because, um, like I said, they, they don't honor my boundaries and, um, I just, yeah, those are the kinds of things that are going to affect my sobriety. So whether it's emotional sobriety or drinking, you know, it's Mm -hmm. at this point in my sobriety, it's not so much about drinking as it is about my emotional sobriety. If this is ringing as being very familiar to any of our listeners, would you have any recommendations for resources or how they how they know what to do or when it's time to make a change? Where would you what direction would you point someone in that might be going through something similar? Oh, for sure. Um, I'm happy to be contacted. I do have some books that I would recommend. And to be honest with you, I don't have the exact titles and authors in front of me. So I would have to share those with you separately if that's okay. Um, but I, um, I think what I would always think about in a relationship is, um, if a friend treated you that way, would you continue to get together with that friend? You know, just because somebody is blood related to you, and I really, really struggled with this, especially since I shared that I'm an empath. And so I I feel people's feelings like my own. And I really, really struggled with like what the right thing to do is. But once I realized that it was affecting my growth and my healing, it was something where I had, then it was about like my recovery, which comes first. And Um, so I had to make that hard decision and it wasn't easy, but I would be, um, very grateful to talk to anybody about that. And like I said, I hope that that's not, I, I hope that it ends differently than that. I just think it needs some time. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really generous of you to, to offer to help anybody that wants to talk about it because I feel like some people might feel like they're who would understand that and and it's common I think isn't it it's just a lot of people don't know what to do with it so they keep subjecting themselves to it and for some people it can be the reason why they're constantly relapsing and Mm -hmm. um yeah there's there's a lot there so thanks for your willingness to talk about that with people of course I wonder um with a predisposition for alcohol addiction is thought to be at least, you know, in large part genetic. Um, have any of your siblings struggled with addiction? I, at this point, don't know of other siblings. I'm the oldest of them. And so if they, if they do, I'm just not aware of that. But um, yes, it is in my family. And I also have um, other relatives that struggle with it. So um, you are, you are young. Um yeah. And I wonder, as you look forward to the rest of your glorious life as a woman in recovery and the matriarch of your family, and um, I just wonder, like, what 
what's your vision for the future and what are some things that you're really looking forward to embracing in the years to come as you move forward in your alcohol-free life? Uh, I'm really looking forward to teaching um, in the field that I studied. I'm also really looking forward to sponsoring, mentoring people, being of service. Um, I know there's a lot of really great like resources out there, uh, Facebook groups that people can follow, people on Instagram and that sort of thing. Uh, because of my job, I am a little bit quiet. I'm not completely open about my recovery. Um, and that is due to my job, but, um, I would like to somehow be able to like mentor or, you know, be able to, you know, write a book or something at some point in my life when I feel more comfortable, maybe a couple more years down the road when I have a little more sobriety. So that sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody that's listening is struggling today or thinking about, about making a change. Um, of course, as we record this, we are rounding out the, the second month of most of us um, isolating at home during the COVID pandemic. Um, is it a good time to get sober? Is there ever a bad time to get sober? What words of encouragement do you have for anyone that's thinking about quitting or struggling with staying quit today? You know, I think it's just one of those things that once you make the decision, you just do it. And it's hard and you get help, you ask for help, whatever that may be. Um, I use a 12-step program, but that's not the only way to do it. Um, There's plenty of support on Instagram. Um, You can even just search like sober and you'll get a bunch of different groups. Um, There's a bunch of groups on Facebook. Right now is actually a really great time for meetings, any meetings, Um, not just you know, any kind of meeting. So um, you can do those on Zoom and you can check those out on Google and try to figure out the information in your area. Um, I also really love um, some of the newer recovery books that are coming out. Um, The one that I really loved is We Are the Luckiest, A Magical Life of Sober Living. I may have said that wrong, so I apologize, but it's by Laura McCohen. It's really great for early recovery. Um, And so I just think there's a lot of resources out there right now for early recovery. Lots of books, lots of podcasts. Um, The Bubble Hour really helped me. Um, You can listen to people's open talks on YouTube. Uh, I think right now is a great um, time. And there's that new, you know, sober curious um, movement too, which is, I think, kind of helping that they're opening up some sober bars. And, you know, it's not so abnormal to you know, not order a drink at a happy hour, you know, and that's something that me being the age that I am, I definitely have run into is that, you know, we do, you know, coworker happy hours and it really isn't a big deal that I order, you know, a water with lime or whatever like that. So. That's great. I'm so glad that that culture is changing. Mm -hmm. It's high time. Yeah. That we start to normalize the choice to be alcohol free. Yeah. Um, And that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story. It's been great getting to know you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. I really am honored to be on your show. Like I said, I had uh, started listening to it when I came into recovery. So it's an honor to be able to be a guest on it. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And my gratitude to you and listeners. If you would like to send a message to Kara or respond to her 
or as she said, reach out with questions of your own about um, resources for family issues, you can email thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will forward your message on to Kara so she can respond to you. That's everything for this week, everyone. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take good care. Own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame. strong just cause you'll keep it on the side it just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride turn the light on turn the light on you can shine when you see old i did that not proud but that was me and when i face it i take back a little dignity i'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, this head on You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession every ears The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror and the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power